I would say probably the harshest words of Jesus in the Bible we're going to look at today. Uh, I don't want to blunt those words or dull those at all, but I want you to hear the heart behind them. A lot of times emotion or tone of voice doesn't come through um, in written word. How many of y'all use emoticons? You are lying. Thank you because I get them from you. None, nobody, Christy is the only person on this side of the room that uses them. There we go. Show me some hands, men. I want to see some men. There. See, what is this? If you're ashamed, then don't put it in your email. Those things get forwarded. So there's no emoticons in the Bible. If you get bored with what I'm doing, then maybe you can come up with some and where they would be appropriate in the Bible. But what we're going to do is we're going to start with the back end of this chapter. It's the, it, it, it's the heart behind what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is harsh and it's very direct. Again, I would say harshest words of Jesus in the Bible. One of the harshest chapters in the Bible as a whole. And if you miss the, the emoticon at the end, you can read it in the wrong way. So we're going to start here in verse 37 and then we're going to work backwards. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is, he's done. If you read back through the Gospels, he's tried everything to get the religious leaders to get on board with him. He's parables, he's talked to them directly, he's performed miracles. He's done everything he can do, and they're not getting it. And so he's unloading everything left in the chamber at this point. This is all the bullets he's shooting. He's, and it's this combination. I think he's, he's sad. He's a Jew, and he's saying, y'all have missed it. You've missed it, and you've actually led this whole group of people astray. And so his heart is broken, and he's angry because they're leaders, and they're not getting it. These guys who are supposed to be connected to God and helping other people connect to him. These guys who should be saying, this is the Messiah. If y'all will follow him, it'll change your life. They're actually, they're actively opposing him. He's, he's sad, he's sangry, he's sad and angry all at the same time. And that's what I want you hearing. I don't know what the emoticon for that is. So that's, that's what I want. As we're reading this, the words are strong and they need to be heard strongly but you need to hear where they're coming from. It's this broken heart that says time after time after time after time after time. He's done, again, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at all of the ways that he tries to get the religious leaders on board with what he's doing. And they continue to resist, 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 reject, reject, reject. And now to the point where they're trying to get him arrested and get him killed. And so he's, I've tried. I've tried to gather, I've longed, he says, to gather y'all together, and you've continued to resist me. And so the, there, there's going to be consequences to that persistent resistance and rejection. We'll look at that next week. It's all this kind of end of the age type of stuff, and we'll look at all that next week. This week is really the setup. It's the judgment, and then um, you'll see what comes. This is kind of the charges that he's laying against them, and you'll see the judgment next week when we get together. So now skip back to verse 1. First, he's addressing the crowds and the disciples. We're going to look at the first 12 verses as a chunk. And what he's doing is he's warning the crowds and his disciples. He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like, 
don't be like the religious leaders. If you're a religious leader, that's not what you want to hear. You don't want to hear somebody saying, don't be like you. Don't do what you say. Don't do what you do. And that's what he's saying here. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That was a, a literal chair in the synagogue, and it also represents Moses' teaching authority. So you must obey them because the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything that they tell you. Now, we're going to stop here. I think if he used emoticons, there would be a little winking smiley face. He's being ironic. He's not telling them to do what they say. As we read through, you'll see there's nothing, nothing that they're saying is good. And so he's, he's saying do what they say, being ironic, meaning don't do anything that they say. And you'll see why here in a second. Don't do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Here's a picture of what those things are if you want to visualize that. Those are these phylacteries, those little wooden boxes. There's one on his head, and you can see one up on his left bicep, and then the tassels are hanging off his um, prayer shawl there. So those tassels would maybe kind of like a rosary where they would work through a series of prayers, and there's little scripture in those boxes and so he's saying you're making those things really big so everybody can see them Uh, back to verse six they love the places of honor and banquets the most important seats in the synagogues they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi but you're not to be called rabbi for you have only one master and you're all brothers and don't call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he's in heaven nor are you to be called teacher for you have one teacher the christ the greatest among you will be your servant For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what he's saying here is, you've got these religious leaders, and he's telling the crowds and the disciples, he's warning them about them. He's saying, you don't need to do what they say. If you do what they say, you're going to wind up burdened. They're going to give you rules, 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 regulations, 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 and you're going to wind up with this heavy load on your back, and they're not going to help you carry it. So if you do what they say, no, that's the end result for you, is burdened. And if you do what they do, then you're going to wind up humbled. What they're doing is they're looking for everybody to recognize their righteousness by the way they dress, by, by the way that the places that they sit, by the way that they're greeted. They want everybody to elevate them, to see them as high and lifted up. Hey, these guys are holy and they're righteous and we need to do the things that they do. And if you exalt yourself, then that sets you up to be humbled. By the Lord, And so he's saying, if you do what they say, you're going you're gonna to wear yourself out. And if you do what they do, you're going to wind up being humbled by God because you're going to be puffing yourself up. Rather than doing any of those things, what you need to do is look to serve. If you want to be great, serve. We talked about that uh, several weeks back. Just a little tangent for some of you who may be going, oh, people call me teacher. Do I need to not let them call me teacher anymore? And my kids call me father. Do I need to tell them to call me something else? What he's talking about here are people using titles to make distinctions between them and everybody else. So if you allow, if, if you've got a bunch of letters after your name or if your position in your company or whatever, if you allow that title, if that's something that's kind of gone to your head in some ways and you use that as a distinguishing mark between you and everybody else, then you need to stop letting, you need to ditch the title for sure. But otherwise, it's fine. Paul calls himself a spiritual father. Paul talks about teachers being a role in the body of Christ. So it's nothing about the, the role. There's nothing even about the label. It's is it being used to elevate yourself. 
And y'all know some people who may do that. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So if you fall into that camp, then you absolutely need to look at that and you need to repent and all of those types of things. But otherwise, it's fine if you're a dad, if people call you father, and if you're a teacher and people call you teacher. Those things are fine. Now we're going to look at these woes. A woe, there's seven of them. It's, it's this sangry thing again. It's this statement of grief and judgment all rolled up into one. Like, you, you don't want to be woed, um, but you don't. It's a bad place to be. It's, this is what's going to happen to you. I'm upset that this is happening to you. You deserve, what, it's all of, you deserve what's happening to you. It's all of that kind of rolled up into one little three-letter word there. Woe, and there's seven of them, and we're going to look at them in pairs. Uh, the first three pairs, and then we'll look at the last one on its own. And what he is woeing them for is being hypocrites. So hypocrite, it's a, it's a mask wearer. It's a theater word. It's someone who puts on a front. Their insides and their outsides are not aligned. So there's, there's a lack of consistency or integrity between someone's insides and their outsides. In the case of the Pharisees, there's not only a lack of integrity that way between their heart and their behavior, there's also a lack of alignment between their role as religious leaders and what God wants for them. So they're out of whack horizontally and vertically, and he lays into them for that. So here's the first set, starting in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. So this first pair, what he's getting on to them is as religious leaders, their, their role is to connect people to God. That's what, reduce it to the lowest common denominator. That's what they should be doing. They should be connecting people to God. And not only are they not connected, they're actually getting in the way of other people connecting to the Lord. What they're doing is they're focusing on externals, on behavior and on rules and on regulations, and they're missing the heart of God. And that, that's, he's saying that it makes you a hypocrite. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is what you say you're doing. You're not doing it. And then if anybody does choose to follow you, they're actually worse off than if they'd never heard of you in the first place. Because what they're doing is they're telling people, this is what God wants. He wants you to follow this list of rules. Here's the 613 rules. Follow them. Oh, and here's the rest of them that we've added. That's what they're giving people. Again, it's this heavy load that they're tying on people's backs and not lifting a finger to help. And what Jesus is saying is those guys, but what, the reason it's worse for them, they, at one point they knew they were lost. Now they actually think they've been found and they're still lost. Because what you're doing with them, you're not connecting them to the heart of God at all. They're in a worse situation than if they'd never even heard of you in the first place. Second pair. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guide, you strain out a gnat, which is the smallest unclean animal, 
but you swallow a camel, which is the biggest. So again, you guys are hypocrites. Y'all should know value. Y'all should know priority. Y'all should know what's important, and you, you don't at all. You think that the gifts that people bring are more important than the presence of God in this temple that sanctifies those gifts. You think God is more concerned about whether you tithe your herbs than whether you're actually embracing his value system, justice, faithfulness, and mercy. How, how does that even make sense for y'all? You as religious leaders should be emphasizing to people, these are the things that are important. This is who God is. This is what he cares about. And you've completely turned it on its head. You're majoring on minors. Third pair. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. This is what we think of when we think of hypocrisy, someone who looks uh, better on the outside than they are on the inside. And that's what he's, he's, again, saying you guys are focusing on externals versus internals. You're wearing a mask. Everything on the outside looks great because you can follow all these rules. Inside, you're dead. You're unclean. You're rotten. You're not, you're not dealing with the source of wickedness, which is your heart, not your behavior. Activity comes from those things. It's not the determining factor in those things. Last one. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. There's, if you read through the Old Testament, it's almost like God has this pitcher. And when it gets full, that's when he dumps it out. And so you can read patient, 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 patient. And then at some point, it's, it's full up and he dumps out his judgment. You can see that in Joshua. There's actually a point where um, the Israelites are, are saying, hey, do we go get these people? And what God said is, no, the full measure, their sin has not reached its full measure yet. He's waiting. You see this patience that God has. And at, but at some point, there is a tipping point where the, our sin, our wickedness, has, it, he's had enough. We filled up the pitcher, and so he dumps out the judgment. That's kind of the picture you have here is the Pharisees say, hey, our, our ancestors, they, they murdered, they mistreated all of the messengers that God sent to them, but we wouldn't do something like that. And here's what God said, Jesus says about that. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel, who's the first person killed in Genesis 4, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Um, he's, you can read about his martyrdom in Second Chronicles, which would have been the last book of the Hebrew Bible, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation. So what he's saying is everything that happened for us would be from Genesis to Revelation. For them, it's from Genesis to 2 Chronicles. Everything that happened in this span of history, it's all coming down on your head. Patient, 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 patient. I sent you everybody. I sent you prophets. I've sent you messengers. Now I've even sent you my son. And y'all continue to resist and to reject. And now you're actively opposing 
what I'm doing through him. And so all of the guilt for all of that is about to be dumped out on you. And when we look next week, you'll see what that looks like. So this withdrawal of God's presence from the temple. In 70 AD, the temple is leveled. It's a rejection of the Jewish religious system. He says, I've left your house to you desolate. That's what Jesus says. I'm, I'm out. I'm gone. You've rejected me, so you've rejected the one who sent me. So that's how this ends. And again, it's very harsh, uh, heavy. But remember that tone that he's coming from, this place of sangriness, sad, angry, all at the same time. He's not relishing this moment at all. He's one of them, and he's broken that they have continued to resist him uh, as he's tried to draw them back into a relationship with God. So what does that look like for us? We're not there. None of us have official, none of you at least, have official roles in a church religious structure. So how does this even fit? All of the, most of the punishment that was to be doled out, most of the judgment has already happened. It happened a couple of thousand years ago. We'll look at some stuff that ties into the future next week. But what does any of this mean for us? I thought of two questions. One, what, if Jesus was going to warn you about me, what would he warn you about? That was, the, that was verses 1 through 12, as he was warning the crowds about the Pharisees. And so I was thinking, well, what would he warn you about with me, and you may ask yourself the same question. If Jesus was going to warn people who know you about you, what would he warn them about? What would he say? Again, don't see that in a heavy way, but just in terms of honesty. And so I thought of the two things that he looks at here. One is he says, don't do what they say. And so I thought, for me, I'm at, obviously that's a pretty big part of my job is talking. And so I would say, is that true for me? Now, there are things where he would say, don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to what he says. It, ties back into what we talked about last week, how important it is for us to know the truth of the Bible. You may say, I'm not a teacher. You might not be a teacher on on any formal level, but I'm sure if you thought probably not very hard over the last week, you've had an opportunity to teach in some way, to instruct, to direct, to encourage, to counsel somebody in your life. James 3 says, not many of you should seek to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. And again, for some of us, we go, I'm not a teacher formally. But I would say just about every one of us has opportunities on a regular, ongoing basis to speak into the lives of others. It's part of the beauty of being in the body of Christ, part of the beauty of having a God who speaks to others through us. And so again, that, that not a heavy thing, just a question. Would he say to me or would he say to you, don't do what he says. It's just going to be worse for you. He's going to focus on your behavior and not on your heart. He's going to give you a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of hoops that you've got to jump through. He's going to give you some self-help books so you can figure this out on your own. You're going to wind up more burdened after you talk to him than before. He's not going to lead you to life. He's going to lead you into this whatever, this performance mode. I don't know, and you may think through that. Those of you who are parents, those of you who are teachers, what do you say to your coworkers, neighbors, that, that type of thing? The second one, and I think this probably more hits more of us, is he says to them, don't do what they do either. Now, obviously, if you've got some sinful behavior pattern in your life, it's pretty easy to say Jesus would say, don't imitate that. I was actually thinking on a broader level. A lot of, it seems like life, even if you don't have kids, life kind of pivots when school starts back in a lot of ways. And for many of us, that was this week. And so it got me thinking about this idea of rhythm. Genesis 1 and 2 are pre-fall. So before sin entered the world, 
So when I want to know what does God really want for us, I read Genesis 1 and 2, and I read Revelation 21 and 22. Those are the only four chapters in the Bible where sin is not present. Everything in between, sin is on the scene. So to me, if I want to know kind of what's, what's the pure picture here, what was the original intention, and where is this thing headed? It's Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And if you read Genesis 1 and 2, what you'll see is there's a rhythm, there's a creation rhythm, rest, work, and relationship. And all of that is pre-fall. So to me, that, that's what God wanted. He wanted us as people to live in this rhythm of rest, work, and relationship. By rest, I don't mean sleep. Sleep is important and that's good, not necessarily what I'm talking about. Um, rest, biblically, really has to do with um, being renewed, being recharged, um, recreated, if you like that word better, refueled. That's the type of thing that I'm talking about. If you, again, read Genesis 1 and 2, creation, 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 seventh day, God rested. Now, obviously, God's not, he's not tired. He doesn't need a break, and he intentionally says, I'm going to rest today. There's something about that for us. And so one of the questions I have for you is, do, do you rest weekly at least? If you were to look at your last week or if you look at your next week, where are the places that you've built into your schedule where you're renewed, where you're refueled, where you're recharged? I don't want to be legalistic about it and say, you know, it's got to be 24 hours out of every seven days. That, that makes it more of a burden than rest, but there should be some in there for you. I don't, I don't, again, not to be legalistic, I don't know that sitting on the couch watching TV counts. Like, that's different. That, that, I think that's fine. I mean, we all kind of need to zone out at times, but I don't know that very many of us get up from that and go, man, I'm full of life now. I, that's not, and that's what I'm talking about. What does that for you? For some of you, it's exercise. For some of you, it's there's a handful of people. You connect with them. It's life-giving. For some of you, it's walking the mountain. or I, I don't know. Hopefully, being in church does that for you or small group. Uh, hopefully, those are life-giving environments. That's one thing. Where's their rest for you? And then work, you can look at a couple of different ways. There's um, your occupation. That's what you do for a living, whether that's paid or unpaid. So there's, a, there's a, an occupational element. God said to Adam, here, tend this ground. And there's also a vocational element. That's your calling or your deal. Those are the good works that God has created for you to do. And so there should be rest and there should be work. And that, again, that work, I think, looks two different ways. It's what are you doing for a living? Brian Tucker works at Tip Top. He sells chicken for a living. So that's, that's his occupation. And then what's, then he's, there are also good works that God has created for him to do that probably have nothing to do with selling chicken. And both of those pieces are important for him. And if you're, if you don't have a job where you're paid, if you're a stay-at-home mom or whatever, that's still, you still have an occupation. There's something that you're spending your time on, and that's good and right and as it should be. Adam didn't get paid for his work. So there's rest and there's work. And notice in Genesis the order of those. So Adam and Eve are created on day six. What is day seven? The Sabbath. So what is their first day alive? The seventh day. We ideally work from a place of rest. Most of us rest from work. We rest at the end. In Genesis, you rest first because rest is when you're connecting with the Lord. It's when you're being rejuvenated and 
refueled by him. And then that then gives me the energy to go and work. It's interesting. Sixth day is when they're made. And the first thing they do is nothing. There's no way they're tired at all. There's no way. They hadn't done anything except get made. And I think there's something there for us. For many of us, rest doesn't come into play until we're wiped out. And if I say, when do you rest? You say, I go to the beach one week in the summer. It's not rest. That's a vacation. And it's good, but it's not, that's not it. This is, I've thought about this. I don't know how you do it. Every seven years, the Israelites weren't supposed to plant anything. It's called a Sabbath year. So think about that. You're an agrarian society. The food you eat comes out of the ground that you plant. And God says for a whole year, don't plant anything. So that means on the sixth year, so I've got that crop. So I harvest that and I eat that. That's got to last me six years, seven years, and then the eighth year because I'm planting in the eighth year. So I can't harvest the eighth year. Can you imagine the level of trust it takes? I don't know if they ever actually did it. The Bible actually seems to indicate that they didn't. And so at some point what God said is, listen, y'all have never kept this Sabbath year, so what I'm going to do is kick you out of the land for 70 years. You skipped it for 490 years. And so I'm getting rid of you for this time when they're in Babylonian captivity so the land can actually rest. Huge step of faith. I'm not saying you get to quit your job every seven years. Try it. See what happens. (laughs) Play it out. But there's got to be some place where we're resting weekly, seasonally, and annually. Those things have got to be built in. Because the reality is nobody is going to give them to you. You've got to fight for it. And the thing is you're going to feel lazy when you're doing it. It's not. You're going to feel lazy. You're going to be thinking, I could be doing this. I could be doing, you won't even be thinking I could be. You'll be thinking I should be. I should be doing these things. They're counting on me. At some point, we've got to figure out how to get this rest work thing. And then there's relationship that runs through all of those things. Relationship with God and relationship with other people. Meaningful. I don't just mean checking in and coordinating carpool schedules or doing things, you know, everything, you know, just texting somebody or Facebooking them. I'm a legitimate relationship, and that takes time. And if, again, read Genesis 1 and 2. Rest, work, relationship. To me, if it's in Genesis 1 and 2, then it's normative for everybody who ever has, is, or will live. It's not optional. doesn't matter what society you live in. doesn't matter what your personal circumstances are. That's how God set it up. And so I want you to encourage you, look at your life. Is there rest? Is there work, both occupationally and vocationally? And is there relationship? Now, rhythm is a, is a pattern of life. It's not balance. I don't use that word on purpose. Balance implies things are even. That's not what I'm talking about. God worked six days and he rested one. That's not even. But he did both. And so rhythm is much, it, again, it's a pattern, but it doesn't mean everything has to be segmented equally. It doesn't mean that there's eight hours a day for work and eight for rest and eight for relationship. Which means there's a pattern of those things to your life. And rhythm is not the same thing as tempo. Tempo is pace. It's how fast or how slow you live. I would say rhythm is normative for everybody. Everybody should be living rest, work, relationship. Your tempo or your pace is highly individualized. It's highly personalized. It's really based on how God has wired you and kind of where you are in life. There's stretches in life where some of you live, what I would say is in the red line. And that, if that's how God's wired you, and that's what, then it's fine. As long as you're hitting rest, work, and relationship, I don't have an issue with that. You can be as busy as you want to be as long as there's rest, as long as you're maintaining the rhythm, as long as you're in the pattern. 
rest, work, and relationship. You can be as busy or not busy. That's, again, a very personal thing based on how you're wired and your energy level and what's going on in your life. All of those things to me, again, are, it's not, it's, it's personal. That's why you've got to be led by the Spirit. But when it comes to rhythm, again, that's the same for all of us. And so one of the questions for me is, could God say, hey, live life the way he is. He's got the right rhythm. Rest, work, and relationship. When you think about the culture that we live in, we're huge on work. We don't know how to rest. And relationships are transactional at best. If we begin to live rest, work, and relationship, people... it's like you're an alien living here. People would notice. They would, your life is in color and theirs is in black and white. And they're going to, what, how, how are you doing this? When it comes to pace, you may think about that. Just a couple of questions you can ask. One is it God honoring. When people look at your tempo, how fast or slow you live, Jesus was never in a hurry. And so if you're always in a hurry, that might be an indication you're living too fast. But Jesus was also never lazy. And so you think about that. Does when people look at the pace of your life, does it make them say, you know what, that guy trusts God. I can tell by the way he's living, he trusts God. Or they look at you and say, God, that guy thinks he holds the whole world together. That guy's living like he's the most, he's responsible for everything and everything is hinging upon him. When people look at you, do they say, the pace that they're living, it lets me know that they know there's important things for them to do. God has a calling on their life and he's given them time and they're not wasting it. Or they look at you and say, that guy, he's just... He's wasting. He's unintentional. There's, there's nothing there. And is it life-giving? That's an internal deal. So God-honoring is external. What do people see when they look at me? And then this idea of, of life-giving, it's internal. Am I good tired or am I bad tired? And you know the difference between those two. It's fine to be tired as long as it's a good tired. If you're bad tired all the time, and you can be bad tired because you're running too fast, and you can be bad tired because you're running too slow, you, get, you feel like a slug. Neither one of those things is good. And so I I would ask yourself, do I spend more time good tired or bad tired? Is my life marked by peace and joy? If the answer to those things are no, then most likely God's not going to say, hey, you can imitate him. Imitate him. He's joyless and is anxious all the time. Yes, let me sign up for that life. Absolutely. No, I'm I'm missing something there. So that's one thing for you to think about. If if God, if Jesus was going to warn others about you, what would he say? Is there anything you'd say, oh, don't listen to them on that? Mm-mm. Or would it, is there some things where you would say, don't live the way they're living? And I would say particularly think about this question of rhythm and tempo. Last thing, if Jesus was going to warn me about me, that's what the woes are. If he was going to woe me, what would it be? What would he say? And again, that's not a harsh thing. That's a broken thing. I want you to get this. You're missing it, and I want you to see it. One of the biggest fights Misty and I had was our first fight. We got married. I, we got married when I was. We were both 22, straight out of college. So I'd live with my mom, and then I'd live with guys for four years, and then I lived with her. And so, our understanding of clean was not. We weren't seeing eye to eye on that. We had this little bitty apartment. It's probably 390 square feet or something. We had a kitchen that was really a hallway, so there's no dishwasher. So we washed dishes by hand, and I was cleaning a cup. And she said, what are you doing? That cup's not clean. I was like, yeah, I washed the inside of it. And she said, you got to wash the outside of it. And I said, no, the stuff goes inside. So whatever, it's not going to taste like that. It's clean. You've got Doritos on your hands. The outside's dirty. I was actually, you can look biblically, who was being more like Jesus and who was being like a Pharisee. But 
I was 22, and I, put, I was like, no, we're going to fight about it. For some reason, I decided to fight about the cup and whether it should be cleaned on the outside or the inside. Jesus gets onto the Pharisees because they're dirty on the inside and clean on the outside. If you're a Christian, you've already been cleaned on the outside. I mean, cleaned on the inside. It's a done deal. This is Ezekiel 36. I'll take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all, from the, all the countries, bring you back into your own land. Sprinkle clean water on you. That's done and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. That's done. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That's done. I will remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. That's done. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's done. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. That's done. For most of us, when it comes to hypocrisy, we're on the other end of the spectrum from the Pharisees. The Pharisees were dead on the inside. They were rotten on the inside, and they look great on the outside. If you're a Christian, you're not dead on the inside anymore. You're alive on the inside. You're like the cups that I cleaned. Everything's good on the inside, but you still have Doritos all over the outside. There's not, that connection hasn't been made of who God, what God has done in you hasn't pushed all the way through your thought pattern and the way you're living for whatever reason. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we're, a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're a, cho- a chosen people, a people belonging to God. That's true of you if you're a Christian. And so the question for me becomes, do you live that way? Are you a hypocrite the other way? There's not alignment between what God says about you and how you're actually living your life. You're not a Pharisee. You're, the, you're on, again, the other end of the continuum for a Pharisee. Far from looking great on the outside and being rotten on the inside, you have a new heart on the inside. But for whatever reason, You don't live like a son or you don't live like a daughter. You live like somebody who's been permanently stained. That's not what the the Bible says you're holy, that you've been set apart from sin and for him. Has that penetrated the way you live? The Bible says you're a chosen people. God picked you, picked you. He's adopted you into his family. What is it? Romans 8, the spirit of adoption in our heart causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. That Holy Spirit lives within you. Do you live as a son and do you live as a daughter? Or do you live as a slave? That's, a, that's negative. It's, a, it's being hypocritical, just the opposite of the Pharisees. The inside's clean, so how come the outside's not? If identity precedes activity, how come my activity doesn't re- reflect the truth of who God says I am in Christ? Do I live as a member of a royal priesthood recognizing I'm a channel of his grace. I'm a mediator. Priests are mediators. They connect God with people who don't know him. That's you. And you may say, I don't know enough, and I blah, blah. It doesn't matter. You're part of the priesthood. So live like it. Recognize you're a channel of grace. Whatever situation God puts you in, you can be a, a, an avenue for his grace to flow into the life of somebody else, if you'll allow him to. That's what's in you. The inside is already clean. So my question is, does the outside reflect that? I'm not talking about sinful behavior patterns. If you're do, like that, that's a whole different thing. That's 101. If you're, we can take care of that. What I'm talking about is this, this, other, this lack of comprehension about what God has done in you, who you are in him, and how that should permeate your thoughts and your behavior and your interactions with others. If God says, you're my kid, why are you worried all the time? 
allow the fact that you're his kid, that he's picked you, that he's adopted you into his family to transform the way you think and the way you deal with frustration and the way you deal with disappointment and the way you deal with uncertainty and the way you deal with difficult people. If he said you're holy, I've set you apart for something and you feel like you're wasting, you're just wasting your life on things that don't matter, recognize he ha- you are holy. You have been chosen. You have been set apart. And there's nothing you can do to disqualify yourself from that. He's the captain of the team, and he's already put you on it. If you're choosing not to go out and play, that's on you. That's not on him. He's got a role for you. So live like it. Let's pray. A couple of things. It's two different directions. One is this idea for me, this kind of rhythm and tempo idea. Some of you are probably already harried and hurried just after a couple of days of the, of the fall. I just want to pray and just, no guilt here. You've got to remember the heart behind all of this. If you're feeling condemned, then you, you didn't read the little, you didn't see the emoticon at the end of the thing. It's a brokenness. He's saying, I, I want what's best for you. None of this is meant to make you feel worse about yourself. It's to call you into life that he has for you. So God, I pray for any who, they're not, they're out of whack. There's not rest, there's not work, there's not relationship. Something is missing in the rhythm of their life. And even as they're sitting there, they're going, you don't, under, you don't get it. There's no room. You don't know my boss. You don't know my situation at home. You don't know how much debt we have. Whatever it is. God, I pray that you would speak to them as a father and say, yes, this is, you can do this. I'm going to show you how. If that's you, if you would say there's no rhythm, you just need to repent of that. Confess, God, I'm not living in this pat- according to this pattern that you've laid out. And I want to. I don't know how, but I want to. If you're feeling convicted about the tempo of your life, it's too fast or it's too slow, just confess that to him. God, if Jesus is never in a hurry, I'm in enough hurry for both of us or the other end of the spectrum. And I don't know how to get my tempo, my pace under control, but I'm looking to you to help me. If that idea that we just talked about, the inside of the cup is clean because you're in Christ, the outside is not confess that to him. Even say the word, God, I'm a hypocrite. There's a lack of alignment between the inside and the outside for me. You've given me a new heart. You've forgiven me and washed me clean. You say that my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. You say you've adopted me into your family and now I have the full rights of a son or a daughter. You say I'm a co-heir with Christ, so everything Jesus gets, I get. You say that in him, I'm I'm the righteousness of Christ. But for whatever reason, I don't live that way. That truth hasn't penetrated my thoughts. It hasn't penetrated my emotions. It hasn't penetrated my behavior and my interactions. And I confess that to you this morning. Pray that you'd show me what does it look like to bring alignment there between the inside and the outside. What does it look like to bring alignment to what you, for what you say about me and the way I'm living?
Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with uh, ministry. We'll have ministry teams up in the corner. We'd love to pray with you about anything you have going on.